As a lawyer, you've picked a vocation. Now find your calling. The key to successful professional life is marrying a vocation and a calling. And if you're listening to this podcast, you've already got your vocation, although you don't have to. Jim Cook, who started Boston Beer Company, has a JD, ended up making beer. It's not a prerequisite that now you're stuck with that as your vocation, but you've probably chosen the law as your vocation. Now, what's your calling? For me, it was beer. There's unbelievable things that you can do with a law degree that you never even dreamed of, and that's the joy of the law. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Our guest today is a lawyer, beer lover, and home brewer who has served as counsel for alcohol beverage suppliers for more than two decades. He currently serves as general counsel for the Brewers Association and consults with select clients as the principal of AlcoStar Consulting. He is also a frequent writer and speaker on alcohol beverage law and policy. Let's raise a glass to our next lawyer who leads, Mark Serini. Mark, welcome. Thanks, Sagal. Great to be here. So great to have you. Unfortunately, we are in two different parts of the country. Otherwise, I would have loved for us to actually share a beer together while we did this interview. So will, maybe will coffee work. Coffee will work and I have my tea. So we'll, I guess we'll do it that way this time around. Mark, I want to give everyone that's listening kind of a slice of life. So what would you say your favorite moment has been today? My favorite moment today? Yeah, today. Probably, boy, if going to the gym was my favorite moment today, that's sad, but that would probably be it. Hey, I don't think it's sad at all. I think we all need a little bit of that self-care and that time for ourselves. So the fact that you were able to carve out that time for you today, I think is wonderful. I, I was hoping to have an ultimate Frisbee game this morning, but we didn't have enough players. That would have been making my day. Ultimate Frisbee. <laughs> uh, I love that. How many players do you need an ultimate Frisbee? An official game, you require seven on seven, but okay. we'll play five on five. I don't think I've ever played ultimate Frisbee. I think the last time I threw a Frisbee was probably with my kids. We played a little Frisbee on the beach. You can do things with a disc. You just can't do with a ball. <laughs> so true. I love it. Mark, I am very excited to listen to your journey and your story. How did you get to where you are today as general counsel for the Brewers Association? It starts like every other lawyer at law school, I actually worked for a few years, went to law school, do not have a family history of lawyers. And in fact, I was probably one of the few people at law school who learned the words plaintiff in first year law school. And what is a plaintiff? Wow. Went to Georgetown Law, clerked on the 11th Circuit thereafter. And it was at that point that I got bit by the uh, love of what they at the time called microbreweries, which is an archaic term. Now we call them craft breweries. So coming out of law school, I took a job at a big firm that I had summered with, but quickly realized that something was calling me to do something different. And I formed it in my head. I wonder if I can be a beer lawyer. Lo and behold, I found a firm that did some work there, started working, and then got the attention of a gentleman named T. Raymond Williams, who's sadly passed on. He was at McDermott and we were introduced by way of Jim Cook of Sam Adams. And he 
recruited me to McDermott in 1999. And that really turned into a 21 year great relationship with that firm. Really, I felt like I had been there, done that on everything in law firm partnership. By the time it was done, it was a great run. Uh, but for the last 10 years of my career, I thought it would be terrific to focus back on nothing but craft breweries and pivot from a lot of bread and butter legal issues to a more policy-oriented government affairs role. So in a nutshell, that's the journey. I love it. So I want to rewind a little bit. You said you did not come from a family of lawyers, but ended up going to law school. Why did you choose to be a lawyer? <laughs> um, it's something that I thought I'm pretty good at arguing. I, I was a history major, so I always liked the intellectual challenge of putting together complex problems, but where you couldn't make a call with mathematical precision like you can in engineering, let's say. There's a lot of probabilities and guesswork. I always found that fascinating. And so I thought that was a skill that would suit me well as a lawyer, and I was right. Now that I think back, I probably should have done more due diligence by asking people if they could introduce me to lawyers. I didn't do much of that. You're uh, not alone. I think a lot of people go into law school with a certain sense of what they can bring to the table and why they want to do it. I think that's awesome. And I think it's a really interesting approach, this idea of not having this precision and really enjoying that feeling. Because some people don't like that feeling, and that's very difficult for them in the practice of law. So really enjoying that feeling is really cool. When did your love of beer start? Was this always a thing? It was definitely in the late 80s. And I remember Sam Adams being one of the first beers where I thought to myself, my goodness, I was like any other college student. I was a college student in the 80s. I think our big brand was Stroh because I was at Lehigh. And at the time, the Lehigh Valley Brewery, which is now owned by Sam Adams, was owned by Stroh. So that was like the beer you could get cheap. But that was an eye-opener. Then when I graduated in 1988, I moved to Boston and there was a beer there called Harpoon. And it was like, wow, I thought beer was this and beer is this. So that was very eye-opening to me. And then when I was clerking, one of the clerks at the chief judge's chambers was really into good beer. And he gave me a book by an author named Michael Jackson, World Guide to Beer. Michael Jackson, not the same guy with the glove. And that was it, man. It opened my eyes to, wow, beer is so rich and it's been a hobby ever since. Amazing. So you have this love of beer. You're learning about it, understanding it, appreciating it. When did you start to make the connection? You know what? I'm going to make this connection. I'm going to start to lean in hard. Yeah. Great question. I guess I was a 2L because my 1L year, I was a clerk. Mm -hmm. I was a 2L at a large law firm. I was doing general litigation and it just occurred to me that I was not going to be happy doing this for decades if I didn't have a special interest in the clients that I was doing it uh, with and popped in my head, I wonder if I can be a beer lawyer. I quickly started calling the uh, the local Bruce paper. I called the editor and said, hey, are there legal issues? And he said, my goodness, of course there are. <laughs> and so I said, let me ask around and find out one of the, what some of those issues are, and I'll start to write about them. Shortly thereafter, I had an opportunity to switch firms. And during that interview process, I said, do you do any alcohol work? And they said, oh, yeah, we do. And so two of the partners I was working under right away put out a call to their other partners that said, hey, there's a mid-level associate here, really loves alcohol law, would love to learn more. If you have projects, send them his way. So all of that started the momentum moving. I love that you took the time to articulate, this is an interest of mine. I'm doing my work. I'm doing what I need to do, but this is an interest and I want to learn more. And I would like more of this kind of work. 
I think that's really yeah. important to the future leaders that are listening on this show that are looking to find their way or looking to find things with purpose for them. Speak up. Tell people what you want. Tell people what those interests are. You only live life once. And if you live it doing something that you're not interested in, that's a sad waste of time. Absolutely. So you start getting on more of these projects. What were some of the issues that you were encountering? One of the very first ones I remember was for, ironically, Harpoon, who were a client of the firms. And there was an issue that I still wrestle with called franchise law. There was a new franchise law that had just passed in New York, and they wanted to know how it impacted their relationship with their distributor. And here we are 25 years later. I know the ownership's founder of Harpoon. I actually know the, the, the distributor, their general counsel is a personal friend of mine. But I did that analysis and we did what we needed to do. And that was really rewarding because it was a small client. So the partner said, hey, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. And I don't know much about this franchise law stuff, but it was a new law in New York. You learn it. And I led the project. And that was real exciting. You must have been so excited, especially because it's a little bit full circle for you because it was Harpoon. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was terrific. The other big project I had there was a big litigation for a partner who's actually still there in intellectual properties, Peter Brody. He had a case litigating against what was then the ATF over the labeling of some wine. And so it really got me to sink my teeth into a case. Eventually, the, uh, the ALJ dismissed all charges against our client, which was terrific. But you don't litigate with the government agency, at least in our business, very often. So that gave me some unique insights that kept with me for 20 years. Absolutely. So that was a really terrific case to be on. This was McDermott, right? That was Ropes and Gray. And then T. Raymond Williams, who was a great old Southern gentleman, he, in all the right ways, recruited me. And it was hard because I was very happy at Ropes. But he was the dean of alcohol practice in Washington, D.C., and one of the top guys in the country. He really did nothing but alcohol law. It took him about a year to talk me into it. <laughs> but eventually, he persuaded me to move over to McDermott. And I worked for six years under him and then took over his practice and built it out further. It was terrific. And Raymond was very conscious about being a good mentor and a good teacher. What do you think makes a good mentor and a good teacher? I think there's probably two things. One, which you're probably going to hear me say at least once more is lead by example. I've always felt whether it's striving for excellence, keeping it practical, making sure everything is done ethically, keeping things civil, even when you were in a litigation against somebody, those are all important things. So leading by example is very important. And then the second thing is investment. You have to invest in it. And to be honest, I don't think I had as much of an opportunity to do that in law firm practice as I, I think one of the unfortunate things about law firm practice, particularly today, is the clients don't want to pay for associates learning and the firms can't afford to write off massive amounts of time for learning. And that's a tension. And I understand it. I think that's a universal tension in the law firms. But now that I'm hiring some people at the Brewers Association, it's really gratifying for me to say, I'm going to spend at least an hour a day on the phone with this person, just telling them stories and just educating people and taking the time. So I think it, it's a combination of example and investment in my view. I love that. Let's move over to the Brewers Association and specifically you spend an hour of your time really giving people context, right? Tell me how have you seen that really help in your team's success? I am relatively new to the in-house 
part of Brewers Association. Mm -hmm. They were founded by a merger in 2005. I'd been outside counsel to them since then and to one of the predecessor organizations since 1998. But being in-house is very different. I think that by spending that time, you create the kind of rich understanding that both helps in the way you work together and also helps on the substantive side of really understanding a problem, not as a check the box, but really holistically getting it and then having better insight to do whatever you're doing about it, whether it's informing membership about a new legal development or trying to educate a member of Congress or a state legislator on a particular issue. So talk to me a little bit about your work at the Brewers Association. Well, actually, before I ask you that, what made you move to the Brewers Association? I was at the point where I could have stayed at McDermott and I was very happy there. And they are still my primary outside go-to law firm. This is definitely not a knock on McDermott, but it was something where I was at a point in my career where I felt like I had done what I needed to do there. And so then I started thinking, what's the crowning achievement look like? And the crowning achievement in my mind was trying to make a dent on some of the policy issues that I'd been working within for 25 years and seeing if I could perhaps advance the football at least a few yards down the field on some important issues for the benefit of the people who brought me to the party, which were craft producers and craft brewers. So that's an exciting prospect and I, I hope will be a great capstone to, to my career. So now you're at the Brewers Association. Tell me about the work that you do now. So probably about 20% of my work is traditional general counsel. And if I need heavy lifting, we have good outside counsel relationships. The bulk of it is government affairs. I think over the course of the year, it splits evenly between federal and state. Right now with the state legislatures in session, states are probably looming much larger than federal, but you would have a period of time, for example, drafting comments to federal rulemaking where I'm largely dedicated to the federal side. So it's a mix and we're building out our capability at the state government affairs level, which has been exciting and fun to stand up a program that was much more de minimis until very recently. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Traditionally, we have been reactive at the state level, where if a state association came to us and said, can you help us? We would. And the ability to help was limited to, particularly prior to me coming on board, they could pay a little bit of McDermott time for me to help, but it was limited. And we have our uh, regulatory and government affairs manager who could spend some time on state law issues, but it was not a lot of bent strength to give really deep help. Now what we have done is by bringing me in-house and we've brought on our first state government affairs manager and we have plans to expand that, we will have people who are directly engaged at the state level and we can be much more proactive in trying to drive policy at the state level. We're never going to do anything, or at least we can't anticipate a situation where we do something against the will of the local state association, uh, but it's no longer going to be reactive. We are going to try to set priorities and drive uh, policy forward in areas that we think we can move the national needle on state law issues 
um, in a very deliberative way that we just didn't have the capability to do just a year or two ago. So that's really interesting to me. So you come into this organization, you're trying to be more proactive versus reactive. What is the approach? How do you prioritize what you're going to be focusing on? One of the things that the Brewers Association is amazingly good at is their budgeting process is incredibly organized. And as part of that process, there's an annual plan which I'm going to be heading into the annual planning for 2023 in just a couple of months. And it will be a very fully fleshed out plan before the end of the year. They are very disciplined and organized that way. I've been through this now for a year and a half, but it starts organically as issues come up and priorities seem to arise. We usually will talk to, for example, state association leaders, see what they're thinking, obviously listening to membership. But after that, you start crystallizing a couple of issues, a couple of priorities, what resources it will take to fulfill that, which is why we're now building out this state government affairs structure. And it's going to be a process. And we're humble enough to know that because we've never done it before, there are things that we don't know. So we have to recognize that there may be shifts, but as you start seeing these priorities, then you put them on paper, you beta test them. We have a committee structure under the board, and ultimately that whole annual plan goes up to the board for ratification. It's a very deliberative process and very responsive because our board is 21 members of the brewing community, even including a pair of home brewers. So we feel that we are very responsive to the community of brewers and brewing enthusiasts in a way that a lot of trade associations just aren't. And, and, and to that point, I know it's a national trade association. How do you differ, let's say, from other types of associations that also focus on kind of the same? Uh, a, a couple of things. First, the, where we are similar, I think we try to be um, representative of our membership, but we're also very conscious and deliberate uh, about diversity. And, and certainly racial and gender diversity is one aspect of that, but also geographic diversity. And then something that is very important to us is size diversity. The sad fact is trade associations, their biggest couple of members pretty much call the shots. And frankly, occasionally we hear that perception of us. We have a board that is represented by people running 3,000 barrel breweries. They're running very small breweries. Mm -hmm. And we make sure that we want to be representative of our entire gamut from, you know, the Boston Beer Company, Sam Adams, which is our largest member, right on down to your tiny little tap room down the street that makes, you know, 500 barrels a year. So we're very careful about that. And the other thing that makes us very different is we have a whole commercial side, I guess is the way to put it, which liberates us from a lot of the trade association issues. We have a much smaller percentage of our dues come from membership dues. We make several million dollars a year on a trade show. We make several million dollars a year on a consumer-facing show called the Great American Beer Festival. And those revenue-generating activities allow us to have the freedom of not being tied to one large member that's paying 50% of our dues. That is a powerful tool for us, and it allows us to be responsive to all our members. That's so interesting. You talk a lot about how important it is to have diversity in gender, race, geography, and size. How do you go about building that? I'm the general counsel, so I have only a, a small role in that. We were probably behind where we should have been when we formed our diversity, equity, and inclusion committee five years ago. We, it should have been probably 10, 15 years ago or more, but we tried to be conscious of that. And in some cases, certainly when it comes to size and brewery 
business model, it's baked right into the bylaws. I was part of the committee that created the Brewers Association when it merged the Association of Brewers and the Old Brewers Association of America. And we baked right into the bylaws that there were going to be two seats for homebrewers, that they would be a constituency that we wanted to have representation on the board. We baked into it that there would be brew pubs who are a hybrid manufacturer restaurant different from packaging breweries. Now, at the time, the concept of the tap room really was not, I guess there were probably a few breweries that operated that business model, but it didn't get recognized as its own business model. Well, we recognized about five years ago that more and more of our members had embraced this sort of local pub on-premise sale model, and we amended the bylaws to create a representation for them. So it's very deliberative to do that. And it's funny, whenever you talk to a large member, they say, ah, so much of the stuff you do is for the little guys. And you talk to the little guys and you always hear the complaint like, oh, everything you do, it's above my head. It's Mm -hmm. for those big guys. But we really try hard. And I think we do a pretty good job, notwithstanding the inevitable grumbles, of catering to the whole brewing community, the wider brewing community. But it it takes work. It really does. And I can relate. Lawline is a national provider of continuing education for lawyers across the country. And I'm not doing this as a sale push. I really do mean it. We deal with that all the time because you have big law lawyers that are like, oh, you're talking too much about solo practice. And then you have the small solo practitioners that are like, oh, this stuff is not the type of matters that we deal with on a solo level. That's probably a problem for most national organizations in general is really trying to ensure that you're catering to everybody, all the constituents at once. Yeah. And I suspect that the fact that we have an incredibly high membership number among potential members, and yet we hear a bit of grumbling from everybody, means we're doing it just right. Exactly. (laughs) That's right. Because at the end of the day, when you're compromising so that everybody gets something, then everybody's a little unhappy at the same time. That's right. That's awesome. So I want to get to a few questions before we end. With the legalization of recreational cannabis in so many states, How do you, is that affecting the alcohol industry? Is it a threat or an opportunity? So let me first say in my practice at McDermott, I was starting to dabble in that Mm -hmm. because it's a highly regulated industry. In a lot of states, they've put the regulation under, they're now the Alcohol and Cannabis Board. Mm So that was starting to creep into my practice. And I think some of the analogies to the end of prohibition are definitely there. Some of the policy considerations are there. From the beer industry standpoint, we do not take an official position, pro or anti-legalization. The one thing that we have made our voice known is that if legalization happens at a federal level, there are certain principles that we think need to be done. We think that it requires an excise tax, just like alcohol has an excise tax. We don't think that it's a great idea to roll it up with the current existing alcohol regulatory infrastructure, because quite candidly, what we've seen in a number of states, despite the best efforts of very good people at those state agencies, it basically sucks the oxygen out of the air for that agency for 10 years. Mm. And, um, And we don't want to see an alcohol market where our regulator basically goes dormant for 10 years So we think that's a significant um, principle. We also think that some of the rules, to be quite honest, you see a lot of claims about cannabis and CBD that are unproved health claims. We think that's dangerous. The regulation of alcohol, which basically has a presumptive no health claims rule, it gets much more complicated than that. But we think a similar approach should apply to cannabis, that FDA has found some very good medical uses for cannabinoids. And once FDA has approved it, 
great. Right. Um, until then, uh, you should not be marketing an intoxicant as a health medicine. That's one of the great evils that led to prohibition is that people used to sell booze as a patent medicine. Hey, it'll make you feel better. Yeah. You're, you're depressed. Here you go. That was an awful practice in the 19th century in the U.S. and early 20th century. And coming out of prohibition, they wisely banned it. So we think that's another one of the basic principles. But as far as the final question of legalization, we're not going to take a position. It's interesting, though, and please correct me because I did read it just like at a glance, but I did read that there are some beer companies that are considering creating non-alcoholic cannabis beers. Yes, yes. And um, our membership has definitely expressed an interest in that. That's, by the way, another principle we don't think, unless the science significantly changes, we think mixing cannabis and alcohol is a terrible idea. And so we would not encourage that. But we do think that there's going to be a market upon legalization for NA beers where the intoxicant, if you will, is a cannabinoid and not alcohol. We've actually published a book on it, a kind of a how-to by a great guy who I've known for decades. He was the creator of Blue Moon back when he worked at Coors, really talented uh, brewer. And he and his wife about five years ago, six years ago, started a brewery in Colorado called Syria, and they make non-alcoholic CBD and cannabis-infused beverages. Wow. A guy with his brewing chops and now experience we thought was the right person to educate. By the way, another thing that Brewers Association has that's unique is we have a publishing arm. So we publish several books on brewing science every year or brewing culture. And we have two different magazines, one for home brewers, one for professional brewers. I'm curious how that continues, not the publishing part, but the brewers that were doing the cannabis type of beer, how far that needs to go before you start to see that representation in your association as well. That's an interesting question. <laughs> That'll be a, a, a bridge to cross yeah. probably in a couple of years. We will see. We have embraced Beyond Beer, Heart Seltzer is something that a lot of our members are making. And so I believe we have a book coming out, or maybe we already have published. This is terrible. I remember reviewing the contract, <laughs> uh, a book on hard seltzer making because it's a little bit different than making a conventional barley-based beer. We have been flexible and we go where our members are going. That's interesting. I never would have thought that hard seltzer would actually fall under this umbrella. I know it's alcohol, but under a brewer's association. Why is that? Well, it's a fermented, most of them. Okay. So this is an important distinction. Most of them are fermented beverages. Mm -hmm. So they are beers. Now, one big brand that's made by Gallo, mm -hmm. uh, the wine company, that's made with liquor, which we think is a fundamentally different product. When you're making a 5% liquor product, all you need to do is make your vodka and add water. Fermenting takes longer. And uh, most hard seltzers are fermented sugar products. Interesting. I didn't even realize that. Speaking of Blue Moon, that's my favorite beer. By the way, we <laughs> prefer that people drink small independent brewery beers, oh. Blue Moon not being one of them. I've tasted it. Mm -hmm. It's a fine beer. But one aspect of what we do is all about small business. Mm -hmm. Sam Adams is our biggest member. And obviously, they're still small in the brewing industry. They have, I don't know, one and a half percent market share. Mm -hmm. Anheuser-Busch has 45% market wow. share to give you a scale comparison. But most of our members are very small and we love the small business aspect of what we do. Oh, here, let me see if I can show you. I have my collection of beer bottles, but some of these are old, but we have a seal, which is an upside down uh, bottle 
um, that says independent on it. And if you see that seal on a can or bottle of beer, that brewery is not owned by one of the big producers. Really? I'm sure that a lot of beer experts understand that. But as someone that is a casual beer drinker, I had no idea. If it's important to you to support small business, then that's something you want to look at. That's really cool. That's really good to know. On that note, what is your favorite beer? Are you allowed to say? Oh, <laughs> uh, so it's very easy for me to say this. I don't have a single favorite beer because I love the gamut of beers. There are some beer styles I like better. I like a combination of some very hoppy beers, beers with a lot of that dry bitterness. Um, I mean, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is such a classic, but also tons of great IPAs being made. I also like good, nice, malty beers. A friend of mine, his neighbor is a new beer brand here in Montgomery County and just made an imperial stout. It's called Black is Beautiful. And it's um, part of a program that um, one of our board members actually initiated on uh, creating a beer recipe and a name, Black is Beautiful, that then goes into social justice causes. And his imperial stout, the local one, which is made with beignets of all things, is absolutely delicious. But it's sweet and chocolatey, sort of the polar opposite of a bitter beer. So there's a lot of choices out there. And thank goodness now I have thousands of choices where when I started this journey, it was hard to find craft beer. Just in our town alone, they just opened up a new brewery, which I'm very excited about. That's and great. Yeah, it's really cool. What's the name of the brewery? It's called Lions for. They're wonderful. And then in addition to that, you're just seeing so many options and it's becoming more of a thing to do in the summers is to go and do beer tastings and things of that nature. It's just very nice. And I love that you're at the center of it and that you're able yeah. to help foster this really cool beer culture all around. Luck, the health of the industry will stay there for many years to come. Yeah, I'm going to ask for a very specific favor, though. I had a beer a very long time ago. It was a habanero beer. And okay. I, I love anything spicy. And it burned your mouth in a good way, which I loved. Okay, yeah. I yep. would like you to please ask people to make more of those kind of beers. I think we just added chili beer to our GABF categories, I think. It's hard to keep up. I think we have about 90 categories now for the Great American Beer Festival judging. Wow. Um, but I believe chili beer is one of them. I'll check. I am obsessed. Uh, Still to this day, look for this beer. I don't remember its name. It was I had it at a, a brewery once a long, long time ago, and it was so delicious. And I just don't see many of those out there. Do what you can, Mark. Okay. okay. <laughs> Tell people to make more chili beers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Back to you focusing a little bit more on the law and on, on leadership in the law. I do want to ask you, what does it mean to be a lawyer who leads? I would put it in two buckets. The first is leading by example. And the leading by example starts with excellence in your work. It starts with also being practical. The law is a tool for society. It is not an end to itself. I think sometimes lawyers fall in love with whether it's legal writing or their pleadings or whatever. No, it should be practical. You need to be solving a societal problem or a business problem. <laughs> Um, or a person's problem. Then the leadership comes when you are excellent. When you know what you're doing and people respect you, then the leadership comes because you're the one who is going to be writing about things and being a thought leader in the industry because of doing all those other things. So I guess it's that two-prong view of it. I agree. Really focusing on the excellence and then people will, like you said, will respect you, will look to you for, for answers and for help. And then leadership tends to come. What, what would you say excellence means to you? Number one, and this is table stakes, never be wrong. Um, never misrepresent, um, never exaggerate. That was always true in my private practice. And now 
we're very careful, I feel, compared to um, other trade associations, not all, but we feel like a lot of what you see out there in advocacy has false sky is falling predictions. We try to be very accurate. And so you build credibility that way. And excellence doesn't mean over-lawyering things, but at least it means if you're going to take a practical approach to it, that you're absolutely clear that, hey, I'm not sure what the real legal answer is. It would take me you know, a week to figure that out, but I can tell you that there's probably a set of risks here and we're going to take a practical approach and say, don't do it that way. Much like a good doctor, right? If a good doctor starts spewing to me about the, the muscles in my hand, what the heck do I know about that? But if he or she can articulate to me the relevant risks in a real world way and lead me to a good decision, that's all I want. And I think lawyers also need to have that skill where they're always accurate, even if they aren't being technically precise, because technical precision sometimes is an enemy to getting to the right practical advice. And again, as I said, the law is a tool for society. That is very insightful. That practicality and the ability to summarize all of the risks that are involved in a way that guides and counsels them to the right decision is so key. Yeah. A few more questions. If there was one thing that you could improve about the legal industry, what would it be? Two things. One is we need to, you said one thing, but I'm going to give you two. Okay. <laughs> one thing, and this is not the legal industry only, is we have too much of our business culture has the idea that like, oh, it's Friday afternoon. We want an answer to this Monday morning. And everybody has to then out macho themselves to say, oh yeah, happy to do it. How about a conference call on Sunday morning? Now there are times where crises call for that, but I feel like in my legal practice, doesn't happen at the BA, but in my legal practice, I felt like three out of four times clients were imposing those deadlines because we're going to move fast. We're going to be tough. We want people to show that we're moving quickly, even if it's destructive of home life. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is probably a problem. And I don't think it stems from the law. I, th I think those business people are doing that to the salespeople, to the marketing people, to the legal people, to everybody. And I think that's a cultural problem that's larger than the law, but it reflects in the law. And then secondly is when we talked about this a little bit on mentoring, Raymond, I think because he was so senior and it was a different time in the law in the late nineties, he could just sit down with me and I could just hear him say in his nice Southern drawl, well, Mark, what do you know about this? And I'd say, gee, not much, or maybe this. And he said, let me tell you a little bit about, and, and that kind of mentoring I've really been enjoying as I'm starting to do it here at BA. It's very difficult to do under the pressure of the billable hour. It's very difficult. I hate the billable hour personally, but there needs to be a way, especially for younger lawyers, and it's going to be particularly important in the age of remote working, to find those times to just invest in things that aren't immediately billable, but that will advance somebody's career long-term. And that investment is often very hard to do in a billable hour situation. Yeah, I agree. But such a return on investment if you do it. We need the next generation of lawyers and we want them to be excellent. We can only do that if we're spending the time to educate them on what we know. Yeah. Being a lawyer, it's not a capital intensive business, right? It's all about what's in here.
And, and if you can't download that to the next generation, you're losing a lot. And speaking on investments that aren't necessarily billable, tell me a little bit about what you do for self-care. So I guess that means hobbies. I've tried to, especially now in the last two years, being isolated at home, but with not quite as many insane business demands as being a partner with a very large practice, um, I make sure that I get a couple of ultimate games in a week. I get in at least a half hour at the gym every day. So that's the physical side. This is my geek alert here, but I love it is Dungeons and Dragons. That's awesome that you play. I think that's fantastic. My husband and I play video games. That's our self-care. We play mostly RPG type games. So okay, I was like, oh, I'm ready. Just give me the geek alert. <laughs> yeah. So my neighbor roped me into that game. And within six months, I'm like, I want to DM. In fact, tonight is my Monday night game. So that's been terrific. And then I love just a lot of household stuff. I love cooking. I'm an improvisational cook. And then my beer hobby. And I do a little bit of home brewing. I just made a batch of mead, which was just killer. Although I need to brew another batch. I'm an empty nester too. So I used to brew with my kids. Mm -hmm. I can't anymore. And then the final thing is beer tastings. I love hosting people who are less completely immersed in beer as myself. I have a Friday group of beer geeks that we have now remotely. We gather and taste beers together. But I love getting a group of, you know, 10 friends who are not as beer knowledgeable as me and sitting them down with dinner and then pairing beers and walking them through the various tastes they're tasting. And that's a lot of fun. That's so great. If I can get one more question from you, yeah, sure. which is what is one piece of practical advice to our listeners that want to follow your lead? What, what is one piece of practical advice you can give them? So you're a lawyer, if you're listening to this, and as a lawyer, you've already picked a vocation. Now find your calling. The key to successful professional life is marrying a vocation and a calling. And if you're listening to this podcast, you've already got your vocation, although you don't have to, right? Jim Cook, who started Boston Beer Company, has a JD, ended up making beer. So it's not a prerequisite that now you're stuck with that as your vocation, but you've probably chosen the law as your vocation. Now, what's your calling? For me, it was beer, but for who knows what else it could be. There's unbelievable things that you can do with a law degree that you never even dreamed of and that none of your professors in law school have even heard of. And that's the joy of the law. Absolutely. Mark, if anyone wanted to reach out, what is the best way that someone can connect with you? Probably the easiest would be my Brewers Association email is mserini at brewersassociation.org. My non-BA professional email is mserini at alcostarconsulting.com and uh, either of those will work. Mark, thank you so much for being here. This was terrific, Sigal. This was a lot of fun. Of course. It was so much fun for me too. I hope we can do it again soon. Really appreciated the, the opportunity to talk. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with almost five stars and over a thousand verified reviews on Trustpilot. 
Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off LawLine's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out LawLine for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.